Our passage this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 23 through 34. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that, those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought, and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, let's go to him in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for us and that you raised him again on the third day. We pray now that you will be with Tom, that you will speak through him. And we pray, Father, that you will open our hearts to receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Good morning. Deferral of gratification. <laughs> I used to tell my kids that phrase and then try to explain what it meant. Deferral of gratification is not the kind of thing that we uh, affluent Western Christians uh, do particularly well. In my lifetime, our culture has, has graduated from the now generation to the me generation, to the me now generation. <laughs> we, we don't like uh, waiting to get our hands on the good stuff. And, and of course, there are plenty of, of uh, self-proclaimed authorities who tell us we don't have to, including people who call themselves representatives of Christ. They tell us that we don't have to wait, that God intends for us to have our best life now. But that's a lie, beloved. God redeemed us not to give us temporary health, wealth, and prosperity, but to bring us into everlasting relationship, communion, and fellowship with Himself, together with all of His redeemed ones. When the first man, Adam, killed that relationship through his sinful rebellion against God, God cast him and his wife 
out of the place of abundant earthly provision. Think about that for a minute. God cast Adam and Eve out of the place of abundant earthly provision and He stationed cherubim, the angelic guardians of the holy presence of God, to block man's way back into the garden and to block man's access to the tree of life so that man could not go on living forever in that place of marvelous abundance in his cursed condition. There would have been nothing gracious about God allowing man to live in that place of abundant material provision when his soul was dead to the source of that abundance. Because if you take God out of the mix, material provision is absolutely empty. There's nothing there. So God cast mankind away from that earthly abundance and at the proper time, just as His prophets foretold from that day forward, as was mentioned in the worship this morning, Genesis 3.15, God sent His one and only Son to end that terrible estrangement that our sin caused between us and God. Every sinner who trusts in Jesus alone has already been restored to that blessed relationship forever. Jesus said in John 5.24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My Word and believes Him who sent Me already has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed, literally has crossed over out of death into life. We who trust in Jesus already possess the resurrection life of the soul. But the soul of man is not the whole of man. God created us as spiritual and physical beings. We talked before about how in the, the Greco-Roman culture there was this thing called dualism that divided the spiritual and physical realms so decisively that it was as if they had no connection with each other. And so it was okay to talk about, to talk about eternal life without a body. But it's not okay with God. Because God designed man as both a spiritual and a physical being. But our physical bodies have not been redeemed yet. Did you know that? Did you know that your body is not redeemed? I'm getting more and more familiar with that as I get older. Uh, and until our bodies have been redeemed, God's gracious work to equip us for unhindered relationship and fellowship with the incarnate, resurrected, and ascended Son of God together with His people, that equipping has not been completed. See, Jesus, Jesus has a physical body forever. Forever. He took on our humanity not temporarily, but forever. And His has already been perfected. Uh, and, and I should say, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus made that outcome for us completely certain. But it has not yet been realized. Believers whose bodies die now are, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5, absent from the body and at home with the Lord. But beloved, absent from the body does not finish Christ's work to redeem and restore God's design for mankind. That's a temporary condition, absent from the body and at home with the Lord. It's marvelous. It's way better than what we have here. 
But it's not the end, it's not the end point of God's intention to redeem. For us, even for us whose souls have been redeemed, God continues to block our access to the abundant earthly provision that the first man knew before the fall. He keeps us under the constraints of the physical curse in dying bodies until he liberates us from these cursed bodies and finishes the work that he started. That last part of his redemption, the redemption of our bodies, will not happen until Jesus returns to claim his bride, his church. Until then, we wait. Not on the sidelines, but on the front lines. And that's what our passage this morning is about. It's about the great wait. It's about waiting not on the sidelines, but on the front lines. Fully engaged in our Lord's business on this earth as His image bearers and agents. Waiting with perseverance and eager anticipation. Waiting usefully, soberly, purposefully, and righteously knowing that the resurrection prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus is well worth the wait. First, Paul says, we wait for our resurrection until our resurrected Lord returns. Last time we saw that Christ's resurrection is both absolutely necessary and absolutely certain, right? Paul told us that what would be true of us he told us what would be true of us and of the entire Christian faith if Christ has not been raised from the dead. And it wasn't pretty, was it? It would be the worst case scenario for mankind and even worse for us as Christians. Our preaching would be empty, useless. Worse than that, that preaching would constitute false witness against God making promises to our fellow human beings that nobody's ever going to keep. Our faith would be grounded in a lie. And we would all still bear the full eternal guilt and penalty for our sins against God on our own shoulders if Christ has not been raised from the dead. And that's a debt that we could never even begin to pay. Eternity's not long enough. Every Christian, Paul says, every Christian who hoped only in Jesus during this short life would of all, human, of all human beings be most to be pitied. Having given up the only pleasures that mankind will ever really know for the sake of a delusion. i got to tell you, a lot of our young people who were raised in the discipline and instruction of the Lord have come to that conclusion that what we believe is a, is a delusion. But immediately after presenting that catastrophic account of what would be true if Jesus had not been raised from the dead, Paul very confidently <laughs> declares in verses 20 to 22 what he knew firsthand to be absolutely, irrefutably true. But now Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. All who trust in Him. 
The resurrection of Jesus is as certain as it is necessary and it reaches to every person who is in Christ by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Christ's resurrection guarantees our resurrection. But there's a a critically important caveat to that guarantee. (laughs) And that's where we pick up this morning. In 1 Corinthians 15.23, Paul says, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that, those who are Christ's at His coming. Our resurrection won't happen until Christ comes back. And until He does, we wait. We wait with that glorious promise as our grid, (laughs) as our resurrection lens through which we see everything that happens during what's, what's left of our earthly lives. I wrapped up last time with the passage I'm going to read again now. It's 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18. And it tells us what awaits us and when we will lay hold of it. When we will lay hold of it. Or rather, when He will lay hold of us. <laughs> it says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you do not grieve as those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall forever be with the Lord. Therefore, Paul ends, comfort one another with these words. And they're very comforting words. This is where our resurrection lens comes from, is these promises. The first thing you and I need to understand and embrace about the glorious resurrection life that belongs to us is that we will not lay hold of the fullness of it until after we have taken our last breath in these unredeemed bodies. And for some, that last breath will come in the blink of an eye that separates their old unredeemed flesh from the transformed immortal flesh that that Christ has to, will give to them, those who are still standing. <laughs> and they're going to watch the dead rise first. That'll be something. Knowing that that glorious resurrection awaits us opens our eyes to an altogether different way of life here and now than, than, the, than the world knows anything about. Instead of placing our hope in the pleasures and satisfactions that we can get our hands on here and now, we fix our hope entirely on God's magnificent promise to us of a destiny that makes worldly pleasures apart from God's presence of no account at all. Please listen carefully as I read a very familiar passage in Romans 8, verses 18 to 25. I wish I could make you hear it as if you'd never heard it before, but it's magnificent. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory to be revealed to us. 
For the anxious longing, listen, the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. In hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we eagerly wait for it. See, that's the great wait right there. With perseverance, we eagerly wait for something far better than we've gotten our hands on here or can get our hands on here. And it redefines the way we live. We live with our view fixed forward and upward and not around. Because we're not going to find that for which we were created around here. And the cool thing in that passage is actually stunning is that it isn't just we who must wait until our glorious resurrection day. It's creation. See, God gave man dominion over his creation. It's our domain. And we messed up that dominion when we sinned against God. And so God cursed the domain when he cursed the masters of the domain, the managers of the domain on his behalf. And until he redeems us, creation is stuck. There's an old quote, I think it's Wilberforce. He said, when the dog barks and the snake hisses, they're saying, I know what you did. Our physical redemption, the redemption and transformation of our mortal bodies into immortal bodies will bring with it the redemption of all of creation. The making new of everything that Jesus will bring about when he comes back is worth the wait. We wait for our resurrection until Christ returns. And we wait until Christ defeats the last enemy and subjects all of his creation to God. In 1 Corinthians 15, right after telling us that our resurrection is on hold until Christ's return, Paul says, then on our resurrection day, then comes the end when He delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father, when He has abolished all rule and all authority and all power, for He must reign until He has put His enemies at His feet. Our resurrection will usher in our Lord's subjection of every power in both the earthly and angelic realms to Himself. Now, godly Christians have different understandings of how that timeline will unfold. And that's perfectly fine. Uh, If there's any category of theology on which we will all have been proven wrong in some detail, it's eschatology. But we agree on the outcome. And that is all things subjected to the one true God. The words rule, authority, and power that are used in, that, in those verses show up quite a lot in Paul's letters. At the end of the first chapter of Ephesians, Paul prays that God would 
Enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we, the saints, would know, among other things, the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. And then he says that that power that's, been, that's now ours, that power is the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead and, and seated Him at the right hand of God far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul's exhortation to us to put on the full armor of God comes with this critical clarification. It says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, against the powers against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. You'll notice there that Paul connects rulers and powers, those terms, with both world forces and spiritual forces in the heavenly places. In both testaments, guys, in both testaments of the Bible, all the way to the last chapters of Revelation, there is a powerful connection between the activity of Satan and his demons and the activity of influential human beings on earth. Both of those categories of rulers fall into the realm of what Paul is, keeps talking about when he uses these words. Rulers, powers, authorities. Both heavenly and earthly. In Romans 13, Paul tells us with, with no room for compromise that every authority that exists on earth is established by God, and we are accountable to submit to those authorities. And of course, the, the caveat is until and unless they command us to do what God has forbidden or forbid us to do what God has commanded. Go back and read the book of Daniel. But all of those authorities have been corrupted by sin, all of them, of every conceivable political party, just like we've been corrupted by sin. And some of those authorities are in militant opposition to Christ just as Paul was before Jesus Christ blinded him to make him see. After Jesus returns and gives us our resurrection bodies, he will abolish all rule and all authority except those that rule in complete submission to him. After putting all of his enemies under his feet, Paul says the last enemy that will be abolished is death. I find that to be a stunning declaration, and here's why. The curse of death didn't somehow creep into God's creation unnoticed. It didn't slip by him. It came from him. Death was God's idea. Death is the curse that God imposed on mankind and mankind's dominion because we rebelled against him. The word mortal means subject to death. That's what the word means. So the curse of death is by definition the mortal enemy of man. But how, how can the curse of death imposed by God be the last enemy of the Son of God? Jesus is both perfect God and perfect man. Death, I believe, is Christ's enemy because death is the enemy of the souls and the bodies of men of whom Jesus is the preeminent and only perfect, sinless example. By his death and resurrection from the dead, 
the one who imposed the curse has destroyed the curse. But the full measure of that victory has not yet been realized by those whom he died to save. You and I all still die physically, just like unbelievers. Well, not just like. So we, we don't pass from this, from this earth in slavery to fear of death. When He returns and raises us from the dead as He was raised from the dead, the last enemy of man and of the Son of Man will be forever put away. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24, and then again verses 27 and 28, Paul presents a truth that stretches the limits of our very limited comprehension of God. He declares in no uncertain terms that once Christ has defeated that last enemy, death, he will then, quote, deliver up the kingdom to the God and Father and will himself then, quote, be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. The struggle we have with that declaration has to do with the long-established creed of the Orthodox Christian faith that the three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are co-equal in all respects in eternity. It's very clear from the Scriptures that Jesus in His perfect humanity submitted to His Father. He said and He did only what His Father had ordained for Him to say and do during His first advent. John chapter 5, Jesus makes that crystal clear. But once He ascended back to the right hand of His Father, there is no continuing eternal subordination of the Son to the Father in heaven because they're co-equal. So what's going on here? Well, I'd, I'd love to give you a simple answer <laughs> that completely resolves any question you might have about all this. I don't have that answer, but, but God has made known some things that we need to, to make sure we have on the table as we, as we reckon with this this amazing passage. Here's some things we do know. It's not everything that touches on this issue, but here's some very important things we do know. We know that the dominion of the long-promised Christ, the, the King of kings in the line of David, that that dominion over every created being and over every created thing will be an eternal, everlasting dominion, not a temporary Dominion. I could give you literally dozens of passages that establish that fact. But I'll give you just a couple <laughs> in, in our short time here. One is Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, which is well known thanks to Handel's Messiah. A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Father of Eternity, Prince of Peace, and there will be no end to the incre there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness for how long? From then on and forevermore. The second very very quick excerpt I'll give you is from Revelation 11 that I mentioned earlier in the worship. Revelation 11, I think it's 17, I can't remember the exact verse, but it says, 
the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And He will reign forever and ever. We know that that the kingdom of, of our Lord Jesus will go on forever for eternity. We know that the three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are each declared to be fully God in the Scriptures. And that the same Scriptures declare from cover to cover that there's only one God. Hence the doctrine of the Trinity. Three persons in one essence. We know from the Scriptures that in the description of the New Jerusalem, the eternal state in Revelation 21 and 22, the Father and the Son are treated not as different in authority, but as identical in authority, sharing one throne. They together are the one temple, and they are the one light in the New Jerusalem. And again, <laughs> Revelation 11, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And, and we know, we know that there is never, there has not been and never will be a battle of wills between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It doesn't exist. I believe that what Paul is looking forward to in these majestic verses in this chapter is the day when the Son's part in the Godhead's eternal plan of redemption will be fully realized. All will have been made new. Sin and the curse will have been entirely done away with. And at that point, the Son will joyfully present to His Father His kingdom redeemed in full. That will not be the end of Christ's reign over all creation. It will be the completion of His saving and redeeming work. He will hand the fruit of that finished work up to His Father, creation redeemed and restored in full, in order that, as Paul says at the end of this passage, that the tri, that he doesn't say triune God, but that's the point, that God, he doesn't say God the Father there, that God may be all in all. That the triune God may be all in all. I, and, and at that point, there's no division of, of there's no subordination. There's just, there's just the Lord God reigning over his creation. Now, above all, we must humbly acknowledge, whatever you do with that, that whole discussion, we must humbly acknowledge that Paul's point in including these marvelous declarations in his first letter to the Corinthian saints is to draw our attention forward to the glorious endpoint of all of history. It's the same endpoint that he speaks of in Ephesians 1.10 when he says, the, he calls it the fullness of the times, the summing up, literally the gathering together into one of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. And that outcome, beloved, is worth the wait. Finally, in verses 29 to 34, we wait courageously with purpose and with godliness. Finally, uh, Paul comes here to where the rubber meets the road uh, to, to what you and I do in our, in our earthly lives that displays our hope in the glorious resurrection that Christ has guaranteed to all who believe in Him. In verse 29, Paul says, Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? I've really been looking forward to talking to you about that verse. 
Over the centuries of the church's existence, literally hundreds of different versions that, uh, of attempts to explain that verse have been written. And that verse has given rise to some of the most bizarre practices observed by false churches. I should say people's interpretations of that verse have given rise. The Mormon obsession with genealogies is driven by the belief that a living Mormon can be baptized as a proxy for or in place of an ancestor who died without embracing the Mormon faith and being baptized as a Mormon. Mormon families and organizations have devoted vast amounts of time and money and energy to tracking down their ancestors so that through the practice of baptism for the dead, those ancestors might still have opportunity to enter God's kingdom. And they got all that. They got an entire industry from one verse by ascribing a meaning to that verse that has absolutely no precedent anywhere else in the whole Bible. Many of the interpretations I've read of verse 20, 29 leave me scratching my head as to why Paul would so uncharacteristically drop a bombshell and then walk away from it. That's not his way of doing things. The view that I believe makes the most sense and that overwhelmingly best fits the point and flow of this passage is that proposed in Anthony Thistleton's and in Paul Gardner's excellent commentaries on this letter. Many of you know people who came to faith and then perhaps were baptized because of the influence of someone, of a faithful Christian in their lives or in their families who died, who went before them. Many who have come to personally trust in Jesus were strongly influenced through the death of a beloved relative or friend whom they knew to be a believer in Christ. My brother came to faith because his best friend had come to faith and died in a motorcycle wreck. It's a long story and it's a beautiful story. But the death of a Christian was the instrument through which God brought my brother to faith. And baptism is the, is the acknowledgement of that position in Christ. Baptism is the acknowledgement of the resurrection promise. We've been buried with Christ in the likeness of His death. We have been raised with Him to newness of life. Baptism declares our acknowledgement of the resurrection promise. So anyway, <laughs> say this. Paul's not endorsing, if I'm right about this, that doesn't mean Paul's endorsing a man-centered motivation for baptism. In Psalm 16, which is really the words of Christ, it says, Preserve me, O Lord, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, I have no good besides you. And in the very next breath, as for the saints who are in the, in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. There's no contradiction between those two things. It's fine for us to delight in our fellow saints. And it's fine for us to be influenced through the, the, the faith and faithfulness of our saints to follow Christ. All right to take, literally take the plunge, right? Let me read you real quick, and I'll be done with this part. Gigi Finley's succinct comments in response to a lot of the fanciful and speculative interpretations of this one verse. He, he says, Paul is referring rather to a much commoner, indeed a normal experience, that the death of Christians leads to the conversion of survivors who, quote, for the sake of the dead, their beloved dead, and in hope of reunion, turn to Christ. 
Such as when a dying mother wins her son by the appeal, meet me in heaven. Such appeals and their frequent salutary effect give strong and touching evidence of faith in the resurrection. All right, enough about that. In verses 30 to 32, Paul ties directly ties the courage of every believer in the, in the face of every temporary threat to this resurrection lens that defines how we live here and now. He says, why are we also in danger every hour? I protest, and I, I would go with the, in the version that Paul read, I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not, not raised, let us eat, drink, and some would add, be merry, for tomorrow we die. Let's just enjoy what we got here. Why should any of us subject ourselves to the kind of grave dangers and threats that Paul experienced for Christ's sake? If there is no resurrection of the dead, all that's left in this life is what we've got here. So let's just enjoy it. Paul already gave us the answer to, to why not just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And that is that even if we do die tomorrow, we will soon be raised to live forever because of the crucified and resurrected Christ. And that, changes, that changes everything. We don't live for here and now. We don't look around. We look forward and we look upward and we live the resurrection life because of the resurrection life that's coming. The destiny for which we must wait until we have finished the fight, run the race, and come out on the refined side of the refiner's furnace. We must wait for our resurrection day, but we do not wait on the sidelines. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. The first part of that is right. The second part is not. We're not just passing through. We're engaged in a battle. And we're to be courageously engaged because we know that not a single promise that we have from God is threatened in any way by any created thing. We have already died and our lives are hidden with Christ and God. So we live purposefully and courageously. And finally, verses 33 and 34, we live soberly and in godliness. Paul says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And he says, become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. And Paul prefaces the, the, the command or the adage, bad company corrupts good morals with the warning, do not be deceived. And I think that means don't buy into the lie that you are somehow special and that this doesn't apply to you. I've never run into a missionary dating situation where the Christian who was engaged in it didn't, wasn't absolutely convinced that they were, they were solid that they couldn't be drawn into worldliness by this unbelieving person that they were connecting with. That's not how Paul says it works. And it's not just missionary dating that's at issue. I lost count a long time ago 
of the number of teenage and young adult guys and girls that I've known who once professed faith in Jesus Christ and appeared to earnestly care about living in keeping with that profession, but who then got involved in a close relationship with someone who enticed them to indulge with them in pornography or in a sexual relationship or in drug or alcohol abuse or in any of the other pathetic counterfeits of the true well-being that exists only in humble submission to the will and the ways of the one who made us for himself. For some of us in this room, the bad company that we keep may be virtual, on a computer screen or on a TV screen. But Paul says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. In verse 34, Paul says, become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. First part of that verse sounds an awful lot like 1 Peter 1.13. Paul says, prepare your minds for action. Literally, gird up your minds. That's, uh, that's a battle term. Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It means you're not looking around. You're looking forward and upward. And you are sober in spirit. And then Paul says, for some have no knowledge of God. And I think his point is that we're being watched. You and I are being watched by the people that we're here to introduce to Christ. God left us here to seek and save the lost as ambassadors of Christ until He comes back to claim his bride, <laughs> to grab as many hands as we can and to put those hands in the hand of Christ. But if we proclaim the word of the cross and then we live the same kind of nearsighted, self-indulgent, sinful lives as the people all around us, our lives will contradict our message. If we, if we take our resurrection lens off, and set it aside and live like everyone else does, those who have no knowledge of God will be pointed away from Christ by us. Finally, and this is just the wrap-up, our resurrection day is coming soon. We know it's coming because the one who promised it, promised it to us is, was already raised from the dead and He's the Lord of all creation. And that changes everything. <laughs> We have this promise. We have this promise from the God who cannot lie that these dying, corruptible bodies will soon be raised in the likeness of Christ's own resurrection to live forever, both spiritually and physically, in the presence of our incarnate, resurrected, and ascended Savior, in the presence of our triune God together with all of his redeemed ones in the glorious place that Jesus said he went to prepare for us. And that promise changes everything. We live with that promise as our destiny. We live with Jesus as our example, with the Holy Spirit as our enabler. We live for him and for no other. Loving Father, your 
Your promise of resurrection in Jesus Christ is our courage, our clarity, and our compass for this life. We confess that our hope is not in anything around us in this world. Teach us, Lord, to fix our hope entirely on the grace to be brought to us at the, at the glorious revelation of Jesus Christ when He comes back. When we see Him, we shall be like Him, for we will see Him as He truly is. Everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies Himself just as He is pure. So we say, Father, keep our eyes on the author and perfecter, and we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.